Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Really 007 podcast for this very special interview with John Glenn, who we think is one of the most important people in the James Bond franchise. John, you honestly, you don't know how well-loved you are. Can I just say that now? So <laughs> on behalf oh, of that. us and all the Bond fans. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> now, you can watch our other interviews on our YouTube channel, uh, but you can listen to every episode on iTunes and Spotify, and we're on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. With me, Tom Pickup, today we have the full compliments, I think for the first time, of Really 007 contributors who simply couldn't miss this opportunity to hear our favourite director talk, 007. So, John, we've got with us today a fellow John. We've got John Kell. Hi, John. Nice to meet you in the flesh. <laughs> hey, John. Yeah. We've got Chris. Hi, nice to meet you. Hey, Chris. <laughs> we've got Rob. Incredible to meet you, John. Incredible. <laughs> Rob. <laughs> Rob, yeah, the name should be there, John. If you, if you, should <laughs> um, and then we've got uh, myself, Tom, and my brother Matthew, and we've got Hi, Harry Tom. as well, another brother, yeah, yeah. <laughs> another, yeah, okay. So, thank you, yes. I mean, although John needs no introduction to James Bond fans, it's just worth going over the mountain of work that you've been involved with in your long and illustrious career. and You've, you've covered a variety of roles for the franchise over 20 years, I believe, from Honor Majesty's Secret Service to License to Kill, which we probably think is our favourite Bond film of all of them. And yeah. c- certainly all the, the ones you directed are in our top 10. So mm. massive kudos to that. But before that, John, you, you started as a second unit director and Peter Hunt called you for the job on Honor Majesty's. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I was working at Twickenham Studios on the Italian job. Um, I was doing a kind of, you know, uh, I was doing a sound editing job actually on that film. And uh, while we were in the in the Dublin theatre, the phone rang, and uh, it was Peter Hunt on the phone from Pinewood, and he said, uh, 
get over to Pinewood and uh, I'd like to have a chat with you. And Peter Collinson, who uh, overheard this conversation, he said, oh, I'm a friend of Harry Saltzman. I'll, I'll get on to Harry Saltzman and give, a, give you a big sentence. You know, uh, uh, I'll tell him what a great guy you are. <laughs> and I, I said, Peter, I'd rather you didn't. Anyway, I'm way over to Pinewood and uh, Peter Hunt was directing Diana Rigg and George Lazenby. And uh, he said... Just hang on a bit till I finish this this scene, uh, John, and uh, presented me with a script, which which was the Bob Run sequence on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And he said, read that, will you? And after he finished shooting this scene, he came over to me and said, what do you think about it? I said, well, it's a wonderful opportunity for an action scene. He said, well, I'd like you to direct it. He said, I've got to get it past Cubby Broccoli. And, uh, and Saltzman first, he said, but I'm pretty certain I can convince them. And with that, on the following Monday, I was on my way first class to Switzerland to start a whole new paragraph of my career. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Stop. You, you were there, weren't you, recently for the 50th anniversary of the film? That's correct. Yeah, I went up to Muren. I've been there several times, actually, since I filmed up there. Um, I stayed at the Eiger Hotel, a wonderful hotel there, uh, which looks out, obviously, on the Eiger. And um, uh, my wife and I were there, and we, we, we were always welcome there. And it's, it's wonderful to see, uh, to go back there and reminisce about the great times we had there. That's amazing. Peter Hunt, though, I mean, what a he was a visionary, wasn't he? And I think that, that he's possibly one of the most underrated people, along with you, in the franchise. Yeah, we see we both came from similar backgrounds. We both uh, became film editors, and um, with a Bond film, which is you know an action movie mainly, um, the fact that you're uh, were a film editor is a great asset because when you come to work out all the action scenes. Uh, you can do a reverse process, if you like, of editing. You know, you visualize the scenes and you break them down into very small segments. And you're also, um, by doing that, you're able to designate certain scenes to second units, third units, fourth units. So, in, in effect, you become a kind of a managing director 
Uh, it's not just a simple case of directing the film. You also have to direct all the all the secondary directors that you appoint mm. um, and storyboard all those action sequences. And and you know it's it's a lot cheaper for a second unit to operate than it is for a first unit. So it's easy for the first unit director to to look at the material that comes in and he you know say. Oh, I didn't like that. Do it again, you know. And it's possible to do that economically. Whereas if you're on the first unit where you've got a crew of about 200 people, uh, and you've got a strict schedule, you, you know, you you haven't got that that um, that ability to be able to re keep reshooting scenes. I mean, I know that it happens on certain films, but it didn't seem to happen on the Bond movies. <laughs> <laughs> John, did you um, have any idea when you had that first um, that call to go down to um, and work on Honor Majesties? Did you have any idea that that would start such a long um, relationship with the Bond franchise, or or was it just? Did you think you were just there for this one gig, and that was that? Well, I was I was counting my luck. I couldn't believe it because I I, uh, I directed a, a TV episode on Men in the Suitcase. And uh, I'd gone a, a couple of days over schedule, or one day, I think, uh, over schedule, which is a death knell for any director on TV. They <laughs> <laughs> didn't ask me to come back, if you put it that way. So I was a bit down <laughs> my luck. And um, it was a serious, uh, you know, it was a diff very difficult project that I was doing. And, um, you know, the fact that I went a day over, was, you know, it was a lesson I learned. I took to heart, you know, I realized at that moment that you have to keep your schedule. Uh, you have to be be um, absolutely clear in your own mind. It's all about economics, basically. And um, not only have you got to put the creative element into your films, but you've also got to watch the money. You know, the, the money is very, very important. And uh, once you start to fall behind schedule, then all the schedules that follows becomes very expensive because suddenly actors are now being employed for twice the time that you originally intended and so forth, and it just throws the whole work. So it's, it's very, very important to keep your schedule. Great they had a, all those collaborators, though, who were there from the start, pretty much. And we've already mentioned Peter Hunt, but you've got obviously John Barry doing the music, who we love. Arthur Woosty you brought in. Remy Julian on the, the car stunts. And of course, you know, Dick Maybound and the script and Cubby Broccoli. So do, do you think that helped everything run smoothly throughout the years? Oh, yes. It's, it was very much a family <laughs> business, you know. I mean, Cubby Broccoli was, um, it was, was a great guy to work for. There's no doubt about it. And all, all us people who worked for him, all the key people particularly, uh, there was a continuity, you know, and uh, we all knew what was expected of us. And uh, the standard was very high. And uh, there was no excuses for coming in with something that was second rate. So, you know, but they were they were very clever guys, and they, and they the fact that they employed you on a bomb movie was a great accolade to your career. You know, uh, you couldn't get a better CV, could you, than working no, on a no. bomb movie? Yeah, that um, that that suggestion as well that um, it, it was um, a real boost to the CV was reflected when we recently spoke with Anthony Stark. Um, mm. He said uh, he spoke fondly about meeting you for the role of Truman Lodge, and how yeah. it was you want me for a Bond film, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he, he talked about the casting process very fondly. Yeah, he was very good in the film and very young 
kid when you know when I met him. I think I don't know how old he was. He was in his early twenties, I think, and um, not terribly experienced, I don't think. But he certainly went into the part with such enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, strange thing with um, with Bond movies because they are, as I say, basically an action movie. And uh, the dialogue scenes, and people used to say when I got the gig, you know, say, oh, yeah, well, how are you going to get on with actors? <laughs> actors are fantastic to work with. They make life so easy for you. <laughs> 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 they put the flesh on the bone, if you like. And uh, uh, I'm always amazed at what they contribute to, to, to a scene. You know, you, you, you work on the script and you see, you know, the, the writers put all the words down and then suddenly you get an actor and they actually produce something that's so real uh, and so interesting and add a lot of humour. Sorry, John, just to add on to that, um, both Anthony Stark and Andreas Vishniewski, they said that one of the great things about working for you is how you just let them take the role and give them the freedom to put the flesh on the bone. So it's just like, it's so great to hear you compliment that by saying how great it is that they worked as well. And it just shows what a great uh, team that uh, you were with the actors and the unit. So just so good to hear that. Well, I can imagine a, an actor, particularly someone like Anthony Stark, you know, who's quite inexperienced, suddenly come onto this huge film, you know, um, $30 million or whatever it was. And at that time, it was a huge amount of money. And and suddenly he's he's there and he's going he's gonna to have to make his mark. You know, he doesn't want to go down like the Titanic. He wants to <laughs> produce a, a, a good performance. And um, the only way you can do that is by encouraging. Um, you know, you, you, you can't, it's, it's like when you set up a scene, uh, you, can't, you can't fit the actors into the frame. You have to let them experiment, uh, let you improvise. Um, you have to allow them the freedom of the set. You don't have to sort of, at that stage, you, you just let them loose on the set. And the sets were wonderful, you know, Peter Lamont, our yeah. production designer, designed these fantastic sets. Um, and it, it was wonderful for them. They got, suddenly they felt alive in these terrific sets and it, it helped them actually produce the character that was necessary. So, um, yeah, it's, it's important that uh, you encourage the actors. As the director, I mean, I... I wasn't an expert on on acting, and uh, all these actors, most of the actors I got were vastly experienced, know more about acting than I would ever know. So why would I impose my will on them initially? I would just let them let them loose, let them do what they wanted to do, and then I would then go in with the cameraman, and then we'd kind of refine the scene, and then we'd say, well, you know, condense this bit of action so that you're in a certain area of the set that we, we can use to full advantage. But it's, it's, a, it's a very gradual process. And uh, you start, Lewis Gilbert taught me, he said, if you come in on a Monday morning, you don't know quite what you're doing, just call the actors on the set. And he said, actors being actors, as soon as you say action, they'll do something. They start, <laughs> and from that from that point, you can go on and develop the scene. What about people like uh, Grace Grace Jones and VJ from Octopussy who weren't actors? I mean, big <laughs> characters to direct, surely. 
<laughs> well, you mentioned those. So VJ, it was a t- of course a world class tennis player. Uh, also had the most wonderful personality, and uh, was a great friend of ours. And he used to teach uh, the, the broccoli family in Hollywood. He used to come and teach them some tennis. Try to teach them play tennis. <laughs> uh, if you if you saw, saw Cubby, you'd realise he wasn't much of a tennis player. <laughs> <laughs> But um, he was a friend of the family and um, such a lovely man. And, um, you know, I met him there and, um, and we got on great. And we, di- we didn't give him anything that was that required too much of a strenuous acting uh, performance. But he was just himself. He just played himself and he was great. And I remember with, with the, uh, the snake scene, he was a snake charmer in the in octopus scene. <laughs> and uh, we brought him down to Pinewood and uh, we got Jimmy Chipperfield to come down with all his snakes. And we were draping these snakes round, uh, round VJ Armitrush <laughs> on the set. He was terrified. He hated snakes. <laughs> so we all around his neck and uh, oh, he was... He, he, he had to get used to it, and, uh, but it just shows you the magic of filmmaking. You know, within a few minutes, he he coped with it. He started started talking to the snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Charming tune. You do take English money. Only gold sovereigns. Please. I'm Vijay, Special Expediter, Universal Exports. Welcome to India, Commander Bond. Thank you. Call me James. No problem. Where's Sadruddin? Over here, waiting in the taxi. This was the wrong cover. Taxi. I hate snakes. Taxi, sir. Were the tennis uh, references your idea in, in that action scene, in the chase? Oh, I had, yeah, it was my idea. We had to use it. I, I had to use it as a gag. I mean, anyone <laughs> is. And, uh, we love it. We love so he, it. <laughs> yeah, during the chase in in, uh, in Udaipur, uh, he he was swatting them off with his tennis racket. All the films. <laughs> <laughs> and when the crowd looked from side to side, you know, like that. VJ, <laughs> yeah. we have company. No problem. This is a company car. <laughs> Step on it. This should shake him off.
used to try and you know obviously with humor was a very important part yeah. of my films yeah. some people would say it was too much humor double taking pigeon we're a big fan of that john <laughs> <laughs> Superb. <laughs> apparently um everyone says you know it's my you know, Alfred Hitchcock always had his um, appearance on that. Well, I didn't have an appearance, but I always used to used to use um, a pigeon in my films, you yeah. know, to startle those tense moment. And uh, someone asked me once, you know, why do you use a pigeon? And I said, well, they're cheap and they're readily available anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> John, can I can I ask as well as the pigeon? Uh, every one of your films seems to include a man falling from a cliff yes. with, a, a, with a very loud scream. Was that a deliberate <laughs> signature as well, or was that something that just happened organically over time? Well, there's one of the, one of the chaps in the cutting rooms. Um, he he was, uh, I think it was first on my Majesty's Secret Service. Um, you know, we we all go into the theatre and uh, during the dubbing process, we need we need to scream. Well, we get crowd actors in that doesn't always work. Um, so, you know, some of the boys in the country rooms become very adept at doing screaming. <laughs> uh, they would scream in the process of work. But on this case, um, yeah, there was one guy in particular had a terrific uh, scream, and I used him in every film. It yeah, was the same really? <laughs> Also, the sound of a, a Stuka, a Stuka aeroplane, was, was used in the Second ah. World War, and it used to have a screaming sound. Mm. Uh, I used to use that regularly in every film. That was where, where my sound editing days came into yeah, play. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow. You had quite a few other tropes. We, we mentioned VJ. He was one of the sort of like sacrificial lamb characters. So you have Luigi in Fiores Only. And obviously in um, Living Daylights, we, we love Saunders, the character. We think he's brilliant. Yeah. And then Sharky in License to Kill. So there's, there's quite a lot of those sad deaths, really, for the audience. Oh, yeah. Well, what you do is you, you generate a, a performance. Uh, you write in the script, or Michael Wilson or Dick Maybaum will write in the script a sympathetic character who is usually a, an assistant for Bond. It's a guy he has to meet somewhere. Like. And um, you build up this sympathy where the audience starts to love this guy, and then you kill him in the most savage way. Tibbet <laughs> <laughs> as well. Yeah. 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 
Ben, on, on that can topic I... of Sharky, can I ask what any anything you can tell me about this, John? <laughs> This this is uh, Timothy coming out of the sea in his wetsuit, and um, I have this by my desk for better or worse. Now I did have this up in the house to see how long it would take my wife to notice. It didn't take her very long that this wasn't a family member. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I just like that. That is one of my favourite scenes uh, of all time, and I just like Tim brought so much to the, this role that I, I felt he's he's my favourite Bond. Uh, he really is. And I wish he'd have done more. But I just wondered, that that scene, it, it, it just sticks in my memory so much. And I wondered if you had any memories of shooting that particular sequence on the wave crest. The wave crest scene, yeah, it was the boat belonged to our um, our underwater expert. Uh, he has a base in, in Florida. Uh, and they do kinds of commercial work with this thing. So he has this wonderful boat, which is perfectly equipped, uh, you know, for undersea work, for, you know, taking this midget submarine they, we had and so forth. And it's got all the equipment on board. And uh, so we, we decided when we hired him, we said, can we use your boat as well? So that became the wave crest. And uh, that lent us into a whole period of stuff. You know, there were some wonderful original ideas that came out from a variety of people, you know, while we worked the scenes up during the writing stage. And uh, with Michael Wilson as well, we, you know, the fact that uh, he's involved in an underwater, Bond is involved in an underwater fight. And then suddenly, uh, when things are at their worst, suddenly something comes past him and it's the anchor of the seaplane and he grabs it. And then suddenly he's water skiing on, on the top. Now, we found a guy who could actually water ski with bare feet. It's <laughs> uh, crazy that this chap could actually do it. So, so that's what we, we use that idea. We use that particular character to double for Timothy. Uh, and then, of course, it was quite easy to do the close shots of Tim to cut into that scene. But then he gets caught, he climbs on the aeroplane, he, he overcomes the pilot. Uh, uh, he lands the he takes so he escapes from that scene it was a very original scene yeah. uh, i've never seen anything similar to that
in the Bond yeah. films, we get copied. Yeah. Uh, but we don't, that's a compliment as far as we're concerned that someone copies us. We see it all yes. the time with commercials and they must run and run our films and, and think of trying to think of, of good ideas for actions for a commercial. And it's, I think it's pretty commonplace that they, they run the Bond movies and Spielberg's films, I'm sure as well. Can I, can um, I ask, is that know, something that's on your mind then that you're, you're wary that you're trying to come up with an iconic image or your film would have to feature two or three iconic images, things that would kind of be inspirational to future filmmakers. Is that any kind of pressure that you have on you thinking about that? It's not a pressure. It's, it's something that develops when you're developing the scene. I mean, it starts off, you know, I work alone initially and I do little pen, pencil sketching on um, the, 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 um, like you do when you're editing, you know, the, the close shot of someone. And then you uh, you go to this next scene, and they're all sort of two to three second segments. You you don't try and do the whole thing in one. If it's like a three minute action scene, it might have about two or three hundred cuts in it. So you know you work it out. I think Michael Wilson did, went through the, the one of the reels one day, and he said, "I don't think there's one shot that's over two seconds long throughout the whole <laughs> ten minute scene." Yeah, you know, real. So. That's the whole art of action shooting is you, you do it in very easy to manage segments. Otherwise, it becomes, becomes very, very dangerous for the people, the participants. Um, it can be a very dangerous business shooting this, you know, stuff. And uh, particularly with cars, you know, car chases. I mean, I'm thinking of License to Kill, where we did those scenes where Timothy's underneath the wheels of this huge truck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one slip and he's under the end of it, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, you have to, you have to be very safety conscious. Um, it's very important. He wanted to do the action though, didn't he, Tim? You really did. Tim, Tim was, yeah, we have to hold him back occasionally. He was so keen to do everything, you know. <laughs> obviously, if it's something that was going to be life-threatening, um, you daren't let him do it. Uh, he'd want to do it, but you can't, you can't let him. You know, you have to use Martin Grace or one of the stunt guys, you know, and they were very, very good. And um, you, you get um, Timothy into the scene, and he was very, very good. He did a lot of stuff which, you know, you'd hesitate to ask, you know, the top actor in the film to do. But he was, um, and Arthur Worcester, my second unit director, um, he was a fantastic cameraman. Uh, I met many years ago when I was working on documentaries. And he was a one-man band, you know. He was a guy that could, could do anything. He was very versatile, um, self-reliant. And uh, I always remembered him. And when I got the gig to direct for your eyes only, Cubby said, who's going to be your second unit director? And I said, Arthur Worcester. And he said, who's he? And uh, I said, well, you'll have to meet him. Because he hadn't got any credits on feature films. They were all documentaries. Anyway, we, I arranged an interview. And uh, I was in the office one day and Barbara came in and she said, oh, there's this funny little fellow outside with these thick glasses on. And he's looking around for your office. <laughs> and anyway, shortly afterwards, Arthur, Arthur came into the office and tripped over the carpet. <laughs> made the most In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. 
Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And Cubby looked at me as I say, who have you brought in now? You know? <laughs> <laughs> of course, after a couple of films, yeah, Arthur, Arthur was loved by everyone. He was, so, he was such a good asset. Oh. on the Bond movie and sadly he died last year but yeah, uh, yeah. but he outlasted me actually on the films even when I finished uh, he went on to do two or three more Bond films after me <laughs> you mentioned before about that you know that it's very you know this idea that, that the productions were very much like a, a family and a lot of the crew that ended up like yourself really worked your way up the ranks was it quite was it nice to see other your other colleagues doing the same but in other departments like you mentioned you know people moving up to editing or moving up into directing and things like that was that was that a really common thing to see as the films progressed everyone kind of took a step up in their careers yeah i think people deserve it they 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 work hard for you and they're very loyal and they're very uh, very good at what they do um i mean my editor john grover was my assistant on several films and um when I got the gig, of course, I said, well, John, here's your break. You're, you're now the editor. Of course, I was, a, you know, a director always spends a lot of time in the editing room anyway. So it's just, it isn't such a, you know, it was an, quite an easy route for him because I was always there, particularly on the first film. But, um, you know, he went on to be a, a fantastic editor. And uh, it's the same with the art department, you know, all the, see the juniors coming up through the ranks. And, uh, you know, after four or five films, uh, suddenly they're the boss. <laughs> and it's, mm. You think, oh, what happened to that boy? He's now running the yeah. show. <laughs> so talking about how people move up and stuff, um, you were obviously the editor for Honor Majesties and Peter Hunt was previously an editor on the previous film. And for me personally and for a lot of us here, we, um, we really feel that yourselves – tell the best Bond stories in the films. And you were saying how being an editor it makes you think backwards with the films. But I suppose I'm just asking, when you went into For Your Eyes Only as a director, was there any inspiration from Peter Hunt's direction that you'd seen from Majesties when you were an editor? Did you take any of that on board in how to tell a story or did you just come completely um, through a different way? Well, I can only say that when I first saw the Bond movies and Peter Hunt was the editor of those films, those early Bonds, Dr. No, Russia with Love, Goldfinger, they were superbly edited and... Um, Sean Connery would just make a move towards the door and you cut outside and Sean Connery would, would walk into the corridor, you know, mm. so that it was a style which wasn't really 
used very much in those days. Um, you know, it was for, the films were very literal. You know, you'd you'd follow a chap from A to B, but with with uh, Peter's style of editing, if it was boring, cut it out. That was the basic philosophy, mm. and uh, that meant that you know, just one little look towards the door, and you're out in the corridor. You know, and it was quite a a game changer, really. And uh, I was very, as a young aspiring editor at that time, um, I was very impressed with that style of editing and I certainly adopted it and uh, it became the norm really I mean almost everyone copied that style uh, but Peter was uh, was a brilliant editor and uh, quite quite sort of untidy if you like you know the, uh, the purists would probably wouldn't have liked his work at all but uh, <laughs> it, it, it kept the, the narrative tight which is very essential with a with a Bond movie. I, w- I wanted to know what your kind of involvement was in the writing of the film, the writing process, and then also maybe, sorry, I'm stealing another question, but also your involvement with uh, the composer for each film, um, if that's okay, those two questions there. Yeah. Well, I was very, very involved with the writing because um, Richard Maybaum and uh, Michael Wilson would would start off with a blank piece of paper. I mean, quite mm-hmm. honestly, we'd used up nearly all the Fleming stories by this time. And we had the short stories, which were very, very good. I mean, the one in Your Eyes Only was a fantastic short story. When they came to an action scene, they would, they would, they would say, leave, leave a blank there. There's an action scene. Um, involves this guy or this criminal and what have you. And, uh, you know, be, leave it to John, you know. <laughs> and I would work. Amazing. Same time, I'd work alongside them while they were designing. The, Richard Maybaum was very, very good at designing the pace of a film, you know, the high spots and the low spots. And uh, Cubby was always saying, uh, where are the bumps? He would read the draft, you know, and he would say, where are the bumps? And he wanted high points, you know, at certain stages in the, in the narrative. And uh, that's very important. And, uh, and I, was, I, I was pretty imaginative with action. I, I loved it. And uh, I was brought up as a kid, you know, watching... Um, the Keystone Cops and all that stuff, all those old silent movies and what have you. And uh, I was f- fascinated by how they achieved a lot of this stuff, you know, with, with the train, uh, the car going across the railway tracks with the locomotive sort of narrowly missing the train, things like that. And, of course, the train was towing the car. Uh, it's as simple as that. You know, they, <laughs> they worked it out and put everything backwards and then the, the train would come in towing the car and the car would go across the front of the train by a series of wheels and things, you know. Uh, so I adopted all those basic ways of doing things today with digital, of course. Uh, it's all done. People say, I'll leave that to post. We're doing it in post. And, you know, don't, don't, uh, you don't want anything too complicated. But the original, the pioneers of action stuff were very clever guys. They, they, for the use of foreground miniatures I used as well, which were used, have been used since the very beginning of filmmaking. Um, you know, you give, we use foreground miniatures like uh, uh, For Your Eyes Only, where the, the helicopter enters the hangar at Backton, um, Backton Gasworks. That bit that's in the foreground, uh, uh, the, the side of the hangar in the foreground was about six feet in front of the camera whereas the rest of the scene was 100 yards behind it. Oh. So they matched perfectly. Oh. And it <laughs> goes behind the foreground and it appears to go into the hangar. 
And uh, that was a trick that we used on quite a few films. I've looked forward to this moment, Mr. Bond. I intend to enjoy it to the full. <laughs> Have you no respect for the dead? Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I trust you had a pleasant fright. <laughs> You're fading from my picture, Mr. Bond. But the end cannot be far away. <laughs> It's a second unit shoot because it takes a while, you know, for the cameraman to get the perfect lighting conditions and that to match the foreground with the background. But we used it in Octopussy to great effect. Yeah. Where, where, um, the, where Bond flies the plane through the hangar. Yeah. That's an uh, incredible scene. It's well worth looking at time and time again, you know, yeah. seeing how it works. And uh, it's all in my book, How It Works. <laughs> yes, of yes, yeah. But I showed my children that scene recently, John, and they, they couldn't fathom it. They just they said it's the most dangerous thing they've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, the most dangerous thing about it was John Richardson, the special effects man, uh, was driving the, the, an old Jag that we bought, and we cut the top of it off, and we put a pole arm in the middle, and John was driving this jag this old jag and through the hangar and we we covered the the, the car and the the pod the the pole arm with lots of people running about in the foreground you see so you did you, you know you disguise that and um for you know briefly two or three seconds at the most and then um the the most dangerous thing was when he drove out of the hangar the linkage to the accelerator broke and it suddenly went flat out. And he was now driving this, this contraption with an aeroplane on the top, <laughs> driving it around with parked aircraft that belonged to the RAF and narrowly <laughs> missing them. That was a, quite a happy moment. <laughs> I didn't take off. <laughs>
on Moonraker, I think you directed that opening pre-title sequence. And then there's like the one of the octopus with the planes. I mean, how on earth do you film that? Because you must be in another plane as well and people on parachutes and all sorts going on. Yeah. Well, I was sent out to, to the United States to um, where, where the, the wine vineyards are and um, deserted sort of aerodrome there. And I met these skydivers and uh, they, they hadn't done any filming. I think that they'd been the, in the team that did the Olympic Games um, in Tokyo, I think it was, uh, years ago. Anyway, BJ Worth was the leader. And these were all young kids, you know, and they were there in, with their girlfriends all camped out on this airfield. And the first day I went in there, um, no one got out of bed until 10 o'clock. So I had to give them, I had to ring, I had to read the right act to them and said, you know, now you guys, you're, because now we start work with date. As soon as the sun comes up, we're, we're out there, you know. And uh, so I had to coax them into getting up at like about 7.30 in the morning and having had, you know, and uh, start the day's work. And uh, Good on you. I did, yeah, I did, I, having disciplined them and that, we used to rehearse the scene that was going to take place in free fall. We'd rehearse it on the ground before we got into the aeroplanes and took off. And I was only ever trying to get about two seconds of, of screen footage on each jump. So it took a little while. I was there about three wow. weeks and I was cutting it together. That's where my editing skills came in. As the, as the material came in, I was getting it processed in San Francisco and sent down, and uh, I was cutting it together so we could see how it progressed. And we had a few nasty moments. First of all, the parachute, the parachute has to be get got rid of. You see, so unfortunately, it's then it it comes down and it's going to fall on some farmer's head if we're not careful. <laughs> so we we had to. Um, in, we had to improvise a parachute for the parachute, if you believe me. <laughs> um, anyway, it landed in it landed in the farmer's field, and uh, he decided he was going to hang on to it. He wasn't going to give it to us back, and we only had one. So I had to go and uh, and uh, talk to him and uh, charm him into. I gave him a bottle of whiskey actually, and he handed it over. <laughs> <laughs> Age-old currency. <laughs> yeah, right. In the end, we had him working for us. He was retrieving the parachute for us in the end. Often happens, you know, they, they get the magic of filmmaking. They all get involved, you know. There seems to be quite that. a lot in, in your films of these characters, these people who are living rurally or these people who, like the guy at the petrol pump in Oxfussy, for example. <laughs> are they people that you would, are they people that you would find just hanging around or are they actual actors or how do they fit into the to the the casting they were the one in uh, yeah the one in uh, octopus he was an actor um <laughs> we shot that got that on pinewood peter lamont built a, a little petrol station and
Fill her up, please. These planes we use, the BD jets, uh, they were built for a previous, well, when Moonraker was supposed to have been made many films before that, um, it was, um, there was supposed to be a big aerial sequence and what have you. And uh, Peter Lamont uh, had built these three, three mock-ups of the BD jet. They were actually there in storage at Pinewood. So he said to me, I've got these planes. He said, I've built at great expense. He said, can't you use them for something? And that's when I wrote that sequence for the mainly for financial reasons. We had these three BD jets, so we we got uh, the chap over the, from the states that flew the, 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 the used to do circus stuff with this plane, and uh, he showed me a commercial that he'd shot for um, a Japanese tobacco company, I think it was, and uh, it, it showed him flying this BD jet through an empty hangar, and it was gone in a flash you know you can imagine he's doing 300 miles an hour and he, and he goes through this hangar so fast you are what that, was it did i see that or didn't i sort of <laughs> just so bad <laughs> undramatic that uh that they matted very badly matted some doors closing as as the thing came in you know so it was a trying to make out it was a near escape and that's what gave me the idea to use the, the doors closing in in the scene we shot for Octopussy. So it's, it's strange how these things evolve when you're working things out. And it was a, one of the best, I think, one of the best pre-title scenes. Oh, certainly yeah. the most yeah. exciting. You gave us a glut of riches with the pre-title sequences, though, John. Mm. There's some oh. amazing ones. They were fun. And sometimes, they, like Octopussy, had nothing to do with their film at all. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. ideal... <laughs> like a second feature you know we used to have second features years ago yeah uh, you were too young but uh, <laughs> instead of a second feature we'd we'd do our own second feature and, and call it a pre-title sequence <laughs> i always used to feel like it was the final scene of the previous mission you know the mission yeah. he's just finishing yeah. off before the mission yeah. of the movie yeah it could have been yeah that would have been a good idea yeah <laughs> <laughs> John, can I ask you about your um, sort of working relationship with John Barry? Because you know you're someone who's played such a key role in the uh, in the whole oh, yeah. Bond, you know, era and and the whole yeah. you know, film series. But John Barry is someone as well who, you know, without him, you don't know what that effect might have you know had on things. No. Well, you know, I had lots of dealings with John Barry when I was an editor, of course. You know, because yeah, yeah. you had to supply some bowls to him. But he was a, a bit of a prickly character, John. Um, he, he was quite old-fashioned in his way of working. You know, he he would use um, he wouldn't use a steam bed, flatbed machine to run the film on. He, he'd want to use the old movie over, which is, you know, it's got the take-up spores and always break in the film and it chatters away. You know, the flatbed is much easier to work with. It's got a bigger screen and it doesn't break the film so much. And because uh, uh, we had to send an assistant up there all the time to repair the film for John, he'd ring up, what have you. And on another occasion, uh, he, he chose a flat to work in in London, came over from the States, and uh, he chose the top floor of this building and he then wanted a grand piano put in and there was no way you'd get cramping upstairs or uh, in the crane we had to take the window out and get the crane the grand piano into this flat oh. so he was 
was he Moral was such a chap. I mean, his music is fantastic. I, yeah. I don't know how many Oscars he won. Yeah, I think he had about five. I think yeah, yeah. he was yeah. terrific, wasn't he? Terrific. Yeah, so he had that ability to um, make the screen appear bigger somehow. Yeah, you know, just with it. Yeah. And he was uh, originally. I remember when I was in the RAF as a kid. I was uh, about eighteen. I was stationed down in Lincolnshire somewhere, and uh, in Laos. And uh, I went to watch the John Barry Seven, and he was playing with his, his orchestra there. No way! And, uh, he was <laughs> wow. Not much older than I was. He was probably about twenty, you know. And he had this seven-piece orchestra, and uh, that was the start of him. So he was a great orchestrator as well as being a composer. It was a wonderful, wonderful chap. Yeah. When you're in the cutting room and you just you've done this amazing action scene or this uh, romantic scene or any kind of scene, and then you hear what he's produced, it must be thrilling. Just because it elevates oh. it the level, isn't it? Well, we used music a lot in the editing stage. You know, we didn't wait until John Barry was brought in before. We, we would actually, I would incorporate music from Gone with the Wind, for instance, or any classic music, you know, to help us pace the, the love scenes and uh, pace the action scenes sometimes, you know. We're gonna, we actually put, rode the music in a, we weren't going to use it in the finished film. So as soon as we came to the show, John Barry, the film, the first thing he used to say was, take that music out. But as far as we were concerned, it, it allowed us to pace the scenes so that when we actually finished editing the scene, it was pretty much the way it would finish up in the cinemas. It had to be done very quickly. We had... You know, we were always aiming for Memorial Day or mm. Christmas yeah. or whatever it was, you know, some holiday period. And it was a, a tough assignment sometimes to get the film ready in time. I was just going to ask, would he, would he actually do any work on the, the, the score before actually seeing the final film? Because when we spoke to Andreas, he said that. Um, yeah, there were occasions. Not so much with John, but I know when Bill Conti, we had Sheena Easton. Um, singing the title song mm. in, I think it was For Your Eyes Only, wasn't it? Mm. For, for Your Eyes Only. In fact, we shot that to playback, so we had to actually shoot the music before we filmed the titles, mm. the background titles. Mm. So that was, I think, the only time we've ever done that. She was lovely. She was such a beautiful girl, Sheena, that um, she photographed so well that we had to use her, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, sorry, John, slightly off topic, but moving on to Sheena Easton and obviously your partnership with John Barry, there is also your partnership with Roger Moore. The three films that you film with Roger, I, I think Roger gives his best performances. I think the autumnal era of Roger is just, yeah, yeah. it's the perfect balance. I'd just love to hear your experience of you two working together, if that's okay. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I've worked on quite a number of films with Roger. Uh, and um, in fact, on one day, I, we, were, I think it was, we were filming in South Africa, I think, and uh, I came on the set and met uh, met Roger on the set and he looked at me and he said, am I in your contract or are you in mine? <laughs> <laughs> he had a, Roger had a great, he had, he had a great sense of humour and uh, he was always joking around. And uh, we used to have to allow an extra half an hour on our shooting schedule for Roger's <laughs> jokes during the day, but it kept everyone happy. He, he was, a, you know, very important. And funnily enough, uh, when I got the gig, my first instruction was to find a new James Bond and I toured the world looking for people and what have you. And uh, there was kind of a, a poker game going on between Cubby and Roger, all about money, I guess. So I was busy 
testing all kinds of actors for the role. And of course, that was getting back on. Roger had friends everywhere and all that info was getting back to Roger somehow. So it was all part of the, the deal-making process. And uh, presumably at the end of the day, I think probably Roger won, actually. I was very fortunate in as much that um, I, I, t- I took it. Uh, Cubby was a good poker player. I took him absolutely seriously. And uh, I was desperately looking for, for uh, a possible bond. The scene in For Your Eyes Only in the, in the churchyard at Stoke Poges, that scene there I shot particularly to introduce a new bond. Mm. He goes to the grave of his mm. wife, Razor, and uh, that's when that whole action scene starts where they come to pick him up and he gets into the helicopter and it uh, becomes remote controlled. <laughs> and that happened because I was down at the, I was with Cubby actually, we went down during the building stage for the film. And one of the uh, guys, one of the technicians who was working on a Sunday, had brought his boy in, brought his son in, a little kid. And he, he had one of the new new uh, remote-controlled cars. And he was racing this thing around and nearly ran Cubby and I over with this <laughs> toy, quite a large toy. And that's what gave him the idea for the remote-controlled helicopter. So these things, they, they evolve, you know, and... Uh, it was interesting, yeah. Cubby embraced all that stuff. He loved it. I was going to say we were lucky that Beckton Gasworks was the biggest gas works in Europe, and it was in uh, it was being uh, demolished. So it was the perfect place for us to do that scene with the helicopter, you know, flying, doing dangerous stuff all around Beckton Gasworks. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was a good setting. Yeah. Fabulous. Uh, um, you mentioned there about scouting for other James Bonds. Would, would, did you ever see anyone in this period or process who, and not just at that time, but throughout your tenure with the Bond films, who you thought, oh, they, they'd make a very good James Bond? Well, yes, I, I think there were, there were some numbers. Uh, I was thinking of Russia with Love, um, the, the, the actor uh, Robert Shaw. Mm. Yes. Robert Shaw would play the played in that scene in the in the carriage that fight scene in the carriage of the, the train. Robert Shaw would have been a wonderful Bond. I'm sure of that. Sure, it's not meant to be. <laughs> sure, <laughs> Robert Shaw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there there aren't that many people that stand out as possible. It was the the, the Australian actor um, oh. Mel Gibson. Mel. Yeah, Mel mm. Gibson would have been a good Bond. Yeah. Um, mm. He had that twinkle, you know, which yeah. I think is in no. the uh, He would have been very good. Timothy, funnily enough, was considered early on. Timothy, at that time, he wasn't interested. He was really at the pinnacle of his career. You know, he'd just done a very Oscar-winning film, and, uh, you know, I suppose he was... But then later on, when we did use him, you know, his star had diminished a little bit, shall we say, enough for him to want to play Bond now. So that's what happened. Was it a tremendous amount of pressure having to introduce a new Bond with Tim? You know, obviously, given that Roger was so well-loved and had been around for a long time, but obviously with the Living Daylights, it's quite an introduction. Well, also, you see, with the Bond films, I mean, Covey always used to say, uh, you know, James Bond is equal to the actor that's playing it. I mean, you know, whoever's playing the role, it's still James Bond. And uh, I remember we were in India and uh, with Roger and uh, everyone was asking for their autographs and they were throwing all this um, powder up in the air, you know, this yellow powder, saffron, I think it's called, and uh, covering us all with it. And uh, this little kid came up to Roger and he said, uh, are you James Bond? 
And Roger looked at him and he said, no, I'm Roger Moore, but I play James Bond. <laughs> so it was always a little of a thorny issue with the actors. <laughs> they didn't want to lose their identity <laughs> in the James Bond character. Uh, and yet the audiences, of course, everywhere is James Bond is James Bond, whoever plays the role. Mm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. It was going to be Pierce, wasn't it, at, at one stage mm. in Living Daylights? Is that right? Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pierce was a, a leading contender. Um, I went out to, uh, I was out in Hollywood and we were having trouble finding a Bond to replace uh, Roger. And um, I, I mentioned, I said to Cubby, you know, We'd considered Pierce before, and they you know, discussed it and what have you. And, and then I went out there after we'd had struggled for a bit to find someone. I said to Cubby, you know, don't you think we should reconsider Pierce Brosnan for the role? And he, mm, he sucked his teeth a bit and mm, wasn't quite sure. <laughs> but then I, I did a, a three-day test at Pinewood. No, stop, no money spared. It was a fantastic three days of tests, three famous scenes from the Bond series. And uh, he came out with flying colours, Pierce, and uh, he wow. got the job. And then, of course, Mary Tyler Moore, when she heard he was going to play James Bond, she, she had a contract with him. Um, she then invoked the contract and... Uh, uh, and we had to let him go, but he, of course, he came back about two or three films later. Much the better for it. He was yeah. a bit older and a bit more mature. I think a bit better for it. It was fortunate, really. That was the same with Timothy Dalton, though. When he came in, he was absolutely at the right time. We think he was perfect. Mm. Yeah, look. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think I think the two Timothy Dalton films were. Bef- way ahead of their time actually. oh absolutely and um it's a shame really it didn't kind of work in america for some reason i think they'd fallen in love with roger more so much that they couldn't accept a change you know although uh, living daylights was a very good film and uh, a lot of humor and uh, you know that's important very important uh, but he was probably timothy was probably the best actor we've ever had play the role yeah. you know yeah uh, you know it's not that uh, necessarily i don't think it's necessarily about the you don't have to be the best actor in the world i mean uh, roger um was was always um felt he was you know he was more a personality actor like cary grant you know someone that you love because they got this impish humor and you, you don't have to be a shakespearean actor necessarily to play james bond but it helps for license to kill we we think that you, yeah, great. You were given an opportunity for a, the story where you could explore his character a bit more and mm. see him vulnerable. And I think you directed those sequences so well. Well, we had, uh, you know, with Timothy, we had this very good, very good actor, and we had to take advantage of it. So yeah. when the writing in the writing of that film, uh, both the films, there we, we we used his talent, considerable talent to advantage I think in the writing so that was good and and he was a joy to work with actually yeah. oh. Timothy he was very good Sheriff Saunders the operation's a success and officially still yours I have no intention of leaving it at that 007 I'm reporting to M that you deliberately missed your orders were to kill that sniper stuff my orders Kill professionals. Girl didn't know one end of a rifle from the other. Go ahead, tell him what you want. He fires me, I'll thank him for it. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. 
not as playing around all day as like it's <laughs> 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 Timothy, but he did like to have a joke. Yeah, that was mm. good. Could you be tempted to come back for another one, John? <laughs> <laughs> Would you come back for another? <laughs> well, if you'd asked me that about twenty years ago, I would have said yes. But uh, no, I'm I'm gathering uh, gathering moss here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> John, can I ask you please which Bond film that you directed are you most proud of and why? Yeah, it's a difficult question. I think probably my favourite Bond film is Octopussy. It's only because I love animals and I love working <laughs> with animals. And, uh, and there was some very funny incidents in it. Um, and Roger Moore couldn't believe it because, you know, these actors, they, they, they don't really read the script until the night before they're going to shoot it. You know, they, <laughs> they sort of gloss over it. And... Um, Excuse me. That's that's right. that's an, uh, I'm going to turn that one down. That, yeah. that <laughs> it's, it's Barbara. She's, she's Barbara just heard. Yeah. <laughs> it was when we did the circus scene, and oh. uh, Roger said to me, you can't be serious, John, that I'm going to be playing a clown, can you? <laughs> James Bond playing a clown? <laughs> I said, Roger, it's the most perfect disguise, you know. Yeah. He goes into this caravan and he comes out with the with, with the right face on, you know. And then he goes, of course, then you have to get him to meet the person he's he's impersonating, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you have to come back to another laugh, you know. Yeah. Hey, is anyone else in there? And now for the first time in this country, the death defying human cannonball. I have the pleasure in presenting to you Francisco de Ferle. The suspect's wearing a clown suit. Over. That's him. Hold it there, buddy. You're coming with us. <laughs> General, there's a bomb in that cannon. Sure, where else would a bomb be? <laughs> Great clown, then. I'm deadly serious. I'm a British agent. What? For God's sake, tell him who I am. Kamal and Orloff double-crossed you. I saw them take the jewelry off the train. Does that convince you? Sir, that bomb is set to explode at 3.45. That's 90 seconds from now. General, this man's either drunk or crazy. Hey, Rest in Destroy the entire operation. Let go! Let go! Let go! You go! Grab that hand! Grab him! Hold him! Let go! Damn it! Let go! Let me go! Damn it! There's a bomb in there! Let me go! Let him go! We had some great characters on that on that film, and we had a lot of fun making it. You know, we we shot the most of the railway stuff at the Neen Valley uh, Railway near Peterborough, 
and they were very cooperative. And uh, a lot we after Worcester did a lot of the train stuff, you know, the, the stunt stuff. Anything that I didn't have to do with Roger, you know, we'd, we'd always farm out to second units. <laughs> and uh, as I say, the beauty of that is that you can always get them to do it again, you know. Whereas if you're first doing it, first unit, you, you've got so much restraint with time and money it isn't isn't possible when you're carrying that big crew around with you. Uh, I mean, I miss I miss a second unit director a lot initially, you know, because you have a lot of freedom as a second unit director, tremendous amount of freedom, because you're not dealing with the actors, you know. And uh, <laughs> um, the actors can be. I mean, I always got on very well with my actors. I must say, I, um, there's only one actor that I had a little problem with, and that was uh, Louis Jordan on Octopussy. And he was a superstar in, in Hollywood in his heyday. He was a little bit on the downward trail when we got him, but he was a little awkward at start with. Um, he felt, he went to Cubby, he felt he wasn't being directed, which I could understand because I, my style of directing was much more laid back. And, uh, you know, I, I liked uh, the actors to improvise and what have you and do. And then, you know, try various things and then we settle. He felt he was, he was so used to the, big star stuff that he got in Hollywood, you know, where everyone bowed and scraped to him. And Whereas our set was so laid back, you know, it was, he, he didn't think it was a real set. He didn't think we knew what we were doing. It wasn't until we were filming in India and one day I said to him, you know, Louis, why are you, why are you so bloody miserable? He said, oh, John, he said, I had a personal tragedy. He said, my son, I came back one evening and my son was dead in the bath. He committed suicide. And I, I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Louis. I, I can understand how you feel now, yeah. mm. which is a shame, really. But he had a, you know, as I say, he carried that with him, that mm. terrible tragedy, family tragedy with him, which I wasn't aware of. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I might have been a bit more understanding. Hope so, anyway. Christopher Walken, though, goodness me, you must have let him have fun with, with the role there. Yeah, he was great, Christopher. I loved him. He's, he was... Uh, I'm trying to think of the film that I first saw him in. Uh, Deer Hunter. Deer Hunter. Oh, yeah, yeah. See him in Deer Hunter. He was fantastic. And uh, we were very, very fortunate to get him uh, on the film. He was a very, very good actor and a very nice person to work with. Alive and well, I see. And still bungling in the dark. Well, then why don't you enlighten me, Zorin? You're out of your depth. And you, sudden... You should have accepted my more than generous offer. You can take your offer. Don't bother, Stacey. He's a psychopath. You two have joined forces? <laughs> Stacey, I... Mr. Zora. Call the police, Mr. Howe. What's going on? Tell them uh, there's been a break-in. Ask them to get here as soon as possible. You're being used, Mr. Howe. Uh, hello. Uh, we've had a break in here. City Hall, Office 306. Come at once. What have they done? You discharged her. <laughs> so she and her accomplice came here to kill you. Then they set fire to the office to conceal the crime. But they were trapped in the elevator. And perished in the flames. But that means I would have to be dead. 
That's rather neat, don't you think? Brilliant. I'm almost speechless with admiration. Intuitive improvisation. It's the secret of genius. He used to like to play little games sometimes. <laughs> you know, he would, like when we were shooting in Chanty in France, uh, he would, uh, we would put one of the assistant, the junior assistant directors, keep an eye on, on a walk on because he likes to do a little walk about you, stroll off for about a mile and get lost in the forest or something. So we said to him, here's the radio, an eye on him. Wherever he goes, he goes. Okay. <laughs> so when we, of course, walk and he's got one eye on this kid and as soon as the kid sort of goes off to have a pee or something, he's off. <laughs> he's lost in the woods somewhere and we have to try and find him. But he used to play these little games, but that was fun. It was, it was part of the, you know, the way we used to make movies, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> and Robert Darby was a bit of a character we gather as well on Licence to Kill. Yeah, he became a very good friend of mine, Robert. Oh, great. I mean, uh, Christopher Columbus. Yeah. And uh, the discovery. And uh, he was a, a great guy, a terrific guy. And uh, we had a very, on, 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 I know it's about the bomb, but uh, we, had, we had a problem, money problems on uh, Christopher Columbus, and uh, they were running out of cash. And so um, Robert rang me early one morning as I was leaving for work, and he said, Johnny, I've been on the phone to my agent all night. He said, we haven't been paid. And uh, he said, my agent said, I'm not to go on the set. I'm not to work until we get paid. And so I said, Robert, you're absolutely 100% right. You stay in bed. And I went off on the set. And, of course, I had a cast of thousands. So I got all of Robert's lines, and I was giving them to various members of the cast who had turned up on board the ship. Of course, within seconds, that word had, got, had gotten back to Robert that, that his lines were being given to other actors. <laughs> and before you could say Jack Robinson, on the set, ready to work. <laughs> Brilliant. You had Marlon Brando on that set and on Superman. You, you were second yeah. unit on that, weren't you? That's right. I never met Brando on uh, on uh, Superman when I was doing second unit in Canada. Uh, when I first arrived there, there was uh, all these pinewood painters with these big tanks on their back and they were spraying a green-filled yellow because it was supposed to be a, the drought conditions and it probably was when they first saw this field but uh, when, when they went to shoot or when i went to shoot uh, it was uh, very green so it had to go yellow so they painted it <laughs> acres of it <laughs> but brando was a was a wonderful man and uh, of course it's it's legendary his performances and some of these films were amazing but um yeah he was very nice to me and uh, we, we were filmed in, in Spain. I only had him for 20 days, I think it was. They paid him a huge amount of money. Forgot what it was now. It was a lot of money at the time, about $5 million for 20 days' work or something. And uh, first day, I anticipated I was going to – I'd heard all these horror stories about Brando, and uh, so I was kind of – I made a few provisions because, as I said before, you can't afford not to keep the schedule. So what I did was I cast uh, – a, a very good friend of mine, uh, as his assistant, with the idea that if Brando didn't turn up, I would give the assistant, his assistant, the lines, you see. Well, it always works. It's a double-edged sword, really. <laughs> a, the actors hate losing their lines, and B, uh, you can keep shooting. And, uh, you know, okay, when mm. he does turn up, it's quite easy to just 
replace the close <laughs> shot or something in the scene. And uh, that's what happened. He didn't turn up on the first day. So <laughs> I used this to a friend of mine in his role. <laughs> and that night, evening, I went to see him and uh, he assured me. Tom said, well, first of all, Tom Selleck called me into his room and he said, the only reason I'm doing this film, John, he said, is, uh, is because Marlon Brando's in it. And he said, we played that scene today. He said, and he wasn't there. <laughs> so he said, I'm, I'm quitting. <laughs> so anyway, uh, somehow uh, Marlon and he got together and they turned up the next day and we, we shot a very good scene. So I just replaced the one I'd shot with the, uh, the pretender, shall we say. Uh, I just replaced that. And uh, everyone lived happily ever after. Mauricio <laughs> 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 Del Toro was in that, I gather, as well. John and he, yeah. he was fantastic. It well, was brilliant. Yeah, Barbara Broccoli uh, had a, a hand in that. She was very much in touch with the up and coming actors, and uh, Benicio she recommended very highly. So we, we hired him on that, and uh, of course he went on to get be uh, an Oscar winner. Yeah, yeah. which was yeah. great. He was a very uh, offbeat actor. He was kind of methody, uh, and it was on one occasion he, he he did something too realistically, and he. <laughs> rather made a nasty dent on uh, Timothy's hand oh, wow. during one of the scenes. And I had the unfortunate task of having to go into the dressing room and saying to Timothy, can I have your watch and ring and all the stuff that goes on your hand so I can keep shooting with a double? <laughs> well, he went off to hospital. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. License to Kill, we, we just think, is, is a brilliant film. And yeah. do, do you think in the way that the franchise, particularly with Casino Real, with Daniel Craig, do you think Licence to Kill almost doesn't get appreciated enough as, as the first real precursor to all of that, the darker bond? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, Timothy, this is... Uh, I think Timothy, in a way, paid the price for being an innovator, you know, or rather going back to the Fleming, mm -hmm. original Fleming style, you know, story. It was very, very realistic. And, uh, and it was a, a tough subject as well, you know, with the, the drug trade. And so, you know, we knew we, we had problems, but Michael Wilson and I discussed it at length and we said, well, we, you can't hold any, any punches. You can't hold punches on this. You know, it is a tough business. And uh, they, they kill people's families on that, you know. If so it's, it's um, you know, we, we did it realistically. We researched mm. it very well and that's what happened. But um, I think a lot of people, the trouble was that, you know, kids had already been seeing our films, but the, the censors gave us a very high certificate, you know, 18 plus or something, or 16 plus, 15 plus, I think it was at that time. Mm -hmm. And we had trouble with quite a few scenes, getting that, even getting those past the censor. Now, of course, they run the whole thing in its entirety, and everyone sees it, including the kids. That's the way things have changed, you know. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, John. Yeah. Yeah, nice questions. Thank you very much, you guys. Yeah. Uh, thank you, John. You, you're, uh, you're responsible so, solely for so many happy hours yeah. in our lives. So yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Really the best.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.